Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Stephen Brannan. On Sundays like this, when the lectionary hands us challenging passages to deal with, uh, it's tempting to conveniently decide to preach today on, say, the collect or the epistle reading or some kind of uh, topical something or another. But it's on Sundays like this that you especially need to pay attention to the gospel passage when it's uh, something challenging. Because the lectionary is kind of intentional like that. It tends to assign certain texts that are important not to skip over. uh, And that's why they are placed on a Sunday, for example, instead of like a weekday mass. Before moving on to dive into this homily um, on on this particular passage in the gospel, I want to also read for us the uh, epistle reading for the day. This comes from the 10th chapter of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same supernatural food and all drank the same supernatural drink. For they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things are warnings for us not to desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to dance, or rose up to play. If you remember, uh, that was just read in our um, uh, Matins reading for the Old Testament. This is what Paul's referring to, that exact passage where Moses goes up the mountain, he is delayed by the majesty and awe and presence of God, The people are impatient, and they turn to Aaron and say, we're out here, we need a god, do something. And so a golden calf is fashioned, and uh, the people are happy. They, They have a feast, they sit down to eat and drink, and then they rise up and they play. And that's the the noise, they're dancing and playing and shouting uh, that Moses heard as he is coming back down the mountain. So Paul's referencing this, and he says, Don't be idolaters like them. We must not indulge in immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. That's later on in the story. We must not put the Lord to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. That's also later on in the story. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Also later on in the story. If you don't know the story of Exodus that well, then a lot of the New Testament isn't going to make a lot of sense to you because it's, it's referenced a whole lot, as Paul says, examples unto us. He says, these things happened to them as a warning, as in a warning for us. They were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your strength, but with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. 
So this is the epistle reading, referencing that Old Testament scene. And Paul's instructions are pretty simple. Don't be immoral. Don't be idolaters. Don't put God to the test. Watch out when uh, temptation comes, because there will be a way of escape for you. Pretty simple, straightforward. The kind of stuff that we would expect as Christians to be taught on a Sunday when we show up for church. We open the Bible and we read, don't do bad stuff, do good stuff. Thank you, St. Paul. It's a very um, helpful passage because it meets our expectations <laughs> for, for what we're uh, here to, to learn about and hear. But then our gospel passage is this bizarre parable that Jesus tells that seems to throw all of that clear-cut morality into confusion. This is, as far as I know, the only parable that Jesus tells with an anti-hero. That is, the main protagonist of the parable, usually when Jesus tells a parable, you've got uh, a main character who is um, either really bad, <laughs> um, as in Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man is the main character of the parable, and things don't end well for him, as we see. Or, we've got a character who uh, does something good, or at least his story arc ends on a good note. Like, for example, uh, the parable that's told right before this parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son made mistakes, but in the end, he comes back to his father and is received, and all ends well. So immediately on the heels of that parable, Jesus tells this one about the dishonest steward. And he... <laughs> ends up being commended, but in the end, not for anything actually moral. It's a really confusing parable. And I've read several commentaries with several different conclusions about what this means. So it's by no means uh, one, of, one of those parables that everyone's in agreement on, which makes it, I think, even more interesting. Actually, once you're kind of over the, the discomfort of not having a clear-cut answer like we tend to want, it's a little bit exciting to, to realize that here we have Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who um, is literally the image of God, who is perfect goodness and truth and beauty, telling a story that leaves us confused in our morals and ethics rather than enlightened. If, if that's not interesting to you, then I, I don't know what to, to say to, to make you more fascinated by this. I think this really deserves a good bit of uh, delving into. So I kind of want to go line by line-ish. If you have a, a, a Bible on your phone or, or with you, then you're welcome to uh, follow along. I'm using, uh, by the way the Revised Standard Version, RSV, um, and, and different translations will have a few different words uh, here and there. I'll try to make note of them, but let's begin with verse 1. So we're in chapter 16 of Luke. Beginning in verse 1, Jesus starts telling this parable. He says there is a rich man who has a steward that is hired to basically run all his finances. That's what the steward's job is. And the rich man hears some charges against this employee that he was wasting his goods. He's squandering uh, the rich man's wealth. So it was a common practice um, to, like with tax collectors and, and other 
people who collect debts uh, at this time and in this place to inflate the prices a little bit so that they are able to scrape some profit off the top. And so the steward was uh, taking the money on top of all of this stuff that he's collecting and wasting it. He's not he's not stewarding the money well. So whatever profit or good business should be coming uh, to the rich man by way of the steward is getting lost because he's spending it unwisely. In that sense, he is uh, not very prudent as he ends up being praised for his prudence in the end of the parable. At the beginning of the parable, we see that he's being not very prudent at all. He's uh, not only squandering wealth, but he also got caught <laughs> doing it, and his master was told about it. So he calls him in and he says, what's this I hear about you? I want you to give an account of what you've been doing, and you can no longer be my steward. So the gig's up for this guy. The steward is caught. He is in trouble. He has to give an account. He has to essentially bring all of the stuff he was in charge of, present it to his master, at which time he will then be dismissed. So as he is sent out to go put all of his affairs in order and bring to his master his business, he's thinking to himself, I'm in trouble now. What am I going to do? Once I'm out of this job, apparently he hasn't been prudent enough to put enough away to make himself live comfortably. He's going to have nothing to live on, which is why he's contemplating, can I, can I do manual labor? I'm not strong enough for that. I won't survive. Um, I'm too proud of a man to beg. That I mean, that's the only other option I can think of, but that, that seems unreasonable for me as well. So his only two options are things that he can't do, and he's in a real bind. He decides, I've got to do something to ingratiate myself to these people with whom I've been doing business all this time. So what does he think to do? He says, I'm going to go to all these people who owe my master debts and they have what's called promissory notes, these bills, right? And I guess what makes these bills legitimate is the signature of the steward who's in charge of collecting them. And so he goes to them and says, what, what does your promissory note say? And one customer says, well, I, I owe, I guess, uh, what was it, 100 measures of oil. It says, okay. Sit down and write that you owe 50 measures of oil, and I'll sign off on it. I still have the authority, right? Like, I, I, my master doesn't have these promissory notes. It's still in my possession, so we're going to forge it. We're going to fake it. So he forges bills in order to ingratiate himself to the people who owe money. And he's not crazy about it. He doesn't say, okay, so you owe 100 sit down and write that you only owe 10. He says, sit down and write that you owe 50. So, good deal for the person who owes oil. Uh, good deal for the servant because it looks reasonable enough. And then he goes to another and says, how much do you owe? Oh, I owe 100 measures of, of wheat. Okay, sit down and write that you owe 80. That's pretty reasonable. That's a good deal for you. I'll turn it in. It's gonna be fine. So, when he goes back to his master, we don't hear how, but apparently the master knows what's happened. He's probably not a moron. He knows that given the little bit of time that the steward had, he forged these documents, brought it back and said, here you go. 
can't prove that this isn't 50 or this isn't 80, that it was initially 100. And so the master doesn't say that he was commending the servant to his face. It just says that the master did commend the dishonest steward for his presence. I think maybe it makes sense that he commends him sort of under his breath or to his uh, close associates. This guy did something smart for once. I think it's um, the, the notion I get from this is sort of a reserved admiration for the steward who was stupid enough to waste all of this money and stupid enough to get caught to finally assert his uh, wisdom to do something smart for once uh, to save his own skin. I read one commentator that said the steward had inflated the prices enough to where he could, if someone owed his master 100 measures of oil, by reducing it to 50, the master still isn't going to lose money on this because of the inflated prices. And this commentator was saying this is the only way that the, the, the rich man could have commended his steward is if he hadn't been um, taken advantage of, if he hadn't lost any money. Maybe. I interpret this. I think that's a bit of a reach. I think that assumes some things that the parable doesn't actually tell us. What it seems like to me is the rich man does lose out on this. But he yet still, maybe a little grudgingly, with admiration, commends the steward for doing something smart for once. That's what I get. And the lesson that Jesus then gives us, so we're, he, we're out of the parable now, and he's talking to those who uh, have just listened to this parable, and he says, um, the sons of this world are wiser or more prudent, depending on, on uh, the translation, in their own generation than the sons of light. In other words, the people of this world whose goal are worldly things are more prudent in attaining to those worldly things than the sons of light, those who uh, are at least say that they want and are aiming for heavenly things, than they are at attaining those heavenly things. In other words, people working on this lower level just to attain wealth or fame or whatever, they're actually smarter about how they do that than people who are supposedly working on this higher level are at attaining these higher things. That doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's the case. And so Jesus says, this being the case, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, they may be received, they may receive you into eternal habitations. This last sentence, I think, is where most of the confusion about this parable comes from. There might be some varying interpretations about, you know, uh, why the dishonest steward is commended, uh, whether or not the, the master is cheated in the end or not. But by and large, the details of the story are clear. As confusing as it may seem that Jesus is trying to, to use this to teach us something, the details of the story are clear enough. But then we have the sentence at the very end. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal habitations. Let's break this down by the pieces. 
Make friends for yourselves. Okay, make friends of who? who? Who are the friends that we're making? Well, by means of unrighteous mammon. That means dishonest wealth or uh, a, a love of money, this whole system of um, dirty economics. So we use this system, we use dirty money to make friends. Okay, so not entirely clear yet. Let's keep going. So that when it fails, meaning when that money fails, when that system fails, when all of this is um, bankrupt, when it's all gone, when the system collapses, when uh, the money runs out, whatever, when it fails. Some translations say when you fail, as in when you die. Either way, whether it's when the money runs out or when you expire, when it's all over with, they may receive you into the eternal habitations. Who is they? Presumably, they is the friends that you've made. Okay, so what kind of friends can receive you into eternal habitations? Well, these are going to be people, obviously, who are there, dwelling in those eternal habitations, i.e., the saints, those who belong to the kingdom of God. So what Jesus is telling us is to make friends with the saints, make friends with those who belong to the kingdom of God. Maybe that means those who will belong to the kingdom of God. Make friends with them by means of dirty money. Okay, how do we do that? And what is this unrighteous mammon? I believe, I think, unrighteous mammon refers to basically our entire economic system. It refers to whatever money we owe honestly through a paycheck, whatever money we um, earn through interest in our savings accounts, um, if we're invested in the stock market or have 401ks and you know we're, we're uh, increasing our dividends, all of that money is part of an economic system that is tainted. It's all unclean somehow. What, what does that mean? It means that none of us, we're not living on farms and bartering eggs for you know uh, oil or wheat anymore. We're all part of a system that is compromised. But this is the world we live in. We, we have to be a part of this system. And so just like um, we're instructed to redeem the time. The time that we live in also is evil. So we have the possibility of redeeming the money. The money that we get that ends up in our bank accounts can be redeemed by being used to make friends of the saints. One of the most obvious ways to make friends with those who belong and end up in the kingdom of God is to use our money charitably. Again, that parable of Lazarus and the rich man. The person in that parable who ends up in the bosom of Abraham is Lazarus, the poor man who is a beggar on the street. The rich man doesn't even merit a name in the parable. It's Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus is the only one with a name. He's the one in Abraham's bosom. The rich man ends up not in Abraham's bosom. He ends up separated by a, a gulf. And there's a lesson there that 
he did not use his money wisely. His unrighteous mammon was not used to make friends with those who will eventually have eternal habitations, who will be friends of the kingdom of God. So I think it's safe to say that one of the ways we make friends with those people is through uh, acts of charity. Um, another would be to give money for the, the building up and glorification of, of God's church. And so the church uses money in two ways. Again, to uh, help those in need and to glorify um, God through architecture and art and uh, you know, paying the bills to keep lights and, and air conditioning on and, and things like that. Th those are the two ways that the church uses money. We buy things that are beautiful so that we can use them in worship for the glory of God. We really do care. That's why we don't just have four bare walls in here. This isn't a utilitarian space. This is a space that is mindfully dedicated to the glory of God. Um, and that's why we try to do things to make it beautiful. It's not for us. It's, it's for God. This is a sacramental representation of uh, the beauty of the kingdom of God. And we also um, give money for uh, charitable work, for you know things like that, to actually relieve the suffering of uh, people in this world. And so these, these two ways of using money, I think, is the way that we make friends of those in eternal habitations. And the reason this last line is tacked onto the story is because that's what the steward in this story does. What he does is uh, finally uses money for a smart reason to ingratiate himself to the people the only people on whom he can rely once he's put out of his job. Now, this is something he, he did a bad thing uh, to ingratiate himself with people whose habitations are not going to last forever. But Jesus says, take that example and elevate it to something that actually makes sense. Instead of using money to ingratiate yourself uh, to people now so that they'll let you into their current houses, Use money to ingratiate yourself to the saints of God so that you will be welcomed into their eternal habitations. So that's what this parable, I believe, is here to tell us today. It's giving us an anti-hero, anti-hero, with a low example of what we ought to be doing on a higher level. This is a challenging lesson and I think it's a lesson that will unpack itself more and more for us as we meditate on it more and more and of course one of the primary things to meditate on is how exactly practically speaking do I use my money to make friends of those who have eternal habitations how do I use my money wisely to help those in need and this isn't something that anybody can tell you this is exactly how you should use your money in this case or that this is something that we each have to deal with. We each have to be prudent about it. We're called to be both as gentle and innocent as doves, but also as wise as serpents, as clever, as prudent. So, not everything that is presented to us in the scriptures are as uh, black and white in terms of morals and ethics as sometimes we would like to think. And that's because we live in a complicated world. This world isn't black and white, it's complex. 
our problems and situations are complex, and so ought our reactions to be. We need to take account of the realities of this world, knowing that all of our money is going to be dirty. The, the mammon um, that drives this world is, this, is the same stuff that ends up in our bank accounts, but it can be redeemed, and we can make friends with it of the saints of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.